So many people have been reaching out to me with great suggestions for the show. Recently, I got an email from a listener named Bruce McKenzie, who told me about a woman who had escaped communist-controlled Hungary as a child, became a prima ballerina here in the United States, and is now passing on her wisdom to dancers as the artistic director and founder of the Northeastern Ballet Theater. I know a good story when I hear one. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. I reached out to Idra Toth, and when she agreed to be interviewed, I jumped into the car for a road trip to meet her at her studio in Dover, New Hampshire. Idra met me outside full of energy, eager to tell me not just about how she got here, but what she has learned along the way. We settled into a room that was filled with sequins and tutus, and I asked Idra to tell me the story about her family and how they escaped Hungary in 1956, risking their lives in search of freedom. I was four years old, and my parents decided that they just needed to leave. And my grandmother begged my mother to leave me behind because it was very dangerous under the circumstances, traveling with a child because children cry out, children are unpredictable. And so my grandmother was trying to have my parents leave me with her. And when things cooled down and calmed down, they could send for me. And my mother, being a very powerful woman in her own right, said, absolutely not. The three of us are going to meet our fate whatever that fate may be, and no life is better than this life. When you were living in Hungary, what did your dad do for a living? My father worked for a trucking company and played a very important part when we escaped because he provided the truck. There was a policeman who was trying to get his wife and infant daughter out of the country, and so he collaborated with my dad The policeman provided us with the necessary papers that we needed. And so we had this old rack truck. And I remember my father at the steering wheel, me in between my mother and my father. And there was this lady that I'd never seen in my life holding a little baby. And the child was gagged. So it wouldn't make any noise. If you made a sound, you'd hear gunfire. Terrifying. And you remember that? Oh, I totally remember that. Yeah. After the truck, I guess you had to get out and walk. I can remember just being so tired and begging my mother or my father, please, somebody pick me up, carry me. I want to be carried, you know. And, of course, I very distinctly remember my father's voice telling my mother, I'm too tired, you carry her. And she was too tired, so I had to walk. And at a certain point, my parents had a a suitcase, a small suitcase, and they were so tired, they left the suitcase behind. And you walked by night, Yes. Walking by night was definitely safer, and we hid during the day. You arrive in Austria, and you seek asylum in the United States. Tell me about your arrival. We had left at the very beginning of the revolution because the borders were not secured. There was no fencing. It was just an open pit. There was an Austrian soldier on the other side of this open pit, and you had to get yourself into this ditch, and then he could reach down and pick you up. My father got in, and my mother handed me to my father, and then I got handed to this young man that I didn't know. Of course, I immediately started to cry. And my mother said that when she looked at, when he picked me up, she could see the soles of my feet, and the shoes, the soles of the shoes had been completely worn. Then that, that broke her heart. And that, she said to me, that gave her the resolve that, you know, wherever they land up, they're going to make it. Now, when we were in Austria, 
there were other countries that opened up their their borders to the Hungarian refugees because the Hungarian Revolution was the first inkling that the people's paradise was not what it claimed to be. The United States was taking in 250,000 Hungarian refugees. England was taking in numbers. Italy, South America, and Canada, so all the countries were there. And my father asked my mother, where do you want to go? And she said, I want to go to America. And then we went to Peekskill, New York. We were sponsored by a Mr. Moss. And Mr. Moss was a New York attorney. Now, he had 12 children. They had a mansion right next to West Point Academy. They were looking for a domestic couple. We were there for one year, and my parents went to night school to speak the language and to completely assimilate into the, you know, into the culture. How did you come to Boston? There was an apartment on Epping Street in Dorchester that there was a Hungarian couple that they were moving out, and so my parents heard about it, and they grabbed it. We had an attic apartment that was too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter, and of course we didn't have refrigerators, so this was the days before plastic. My father put a nail outside the bathroom window, and that's where the aches and the milk went. When it rained, we were kind of out of luck because the paper bag broke, and you didn't eat. That was life. Being a latchkey kid before that was a thing exactly is a lot of your early life your parents gave you a key and they told you to lock yourself in the apartment when you got home from school tell me a little bit about that time in your life i would go home and to amuse myself i would dance and i turned the radio on low i did find a station that had music that i liked which was just incidentally classical music and my father uh, played the accordion, so I think there was a little bit of musicality in me in, at that point. So I would go and I would dance, and we would do our shopping once a month at uh, Morgan Memorial because I had one school dress, and I had to take the dress off. So there was no going out to play because I only had one dress, and my mother had a saying, we may be poor, but we're going to be clean. So when she came home from work, that dress got washed and hung up for the next day. When we would go to Morgan Memorial, you know, I could get a, an old recital costume for like three cents, two cents. So this was back in the 50s, right? So my mother got me this old Spanish costume that was bright red. I slept in it. I never wanted to take it off. And you danced in it. I'm going to guess. danced it. Absolutely. By some miracle, the landlady of the building offers you dance lessons because she needs someone to go with her daughter. Tell me about that story. That was such a, a wonderful gift and surprise to me. Mother was very black and white. No was no. Yes was yes. She sat me down when this offer was made, and my mother said, and I'm by that now I'm six years old, if I hear just one time from you, you don't want to go or you're too tired, that is it. And by the time I reached age six, I perfectly understood 100% that what mom said, I could take that to the bank. So That's so interesting because very often I will ask questions like, what was the vibe like in your house? What was the golden rule? What was the message in your house? I'm going to guess this was a very strict upbringing. Oh, you got that right. It was that... Very clearly defined definition of how things are, what is allowed, what is not allowed, and expectations. That seed was planted in me 
that drive that drove the passion and the discipline which is required of being a dancer absolutely so you end up in this dance studio and right away the woman who runs the studio recognizes oh this little girl she's pretty good at this that must have been so validating for you to be totally honest with you, I just love to dance. That's, that's all at this point in my development. That's all I cared about. Miss Alda Morover, oh my goodness, she was absolutely magnificent. She was the goddess of the dance in my eyes. She knew everything about ballet that anybody could ever know. And she had a Russian last name, but she had a Louisiana accent. So, you know. Welcome to the melting pot that is the United States That's of America, right. right? That's right. Did you envision this was the life for you? It was a dharma. It was a soul contract. It was something that I agreed to do, a gift that was given to me, and this is what I have to do. There was never any conscious effort on my part. It, it's a drive that still drives me to this day. And I have been teaching. I just figured out 46 years I've been teaching. I enjoyed a career that lasted 36 years. I retired when I was 46 years old from the stage, which is very long in the tooth for a ballet dancer. I started teaching when I was 21. I still hadn't hit the zenith of my potential. But the opportunity that was given to me is such a powerful driving force. I have to pass that on. So when I started teaching, I have never turned away any child or any family whose child wanted to dance. And because of financial hardships, that you know that was not going to be able to be fulfilled. You so, so understood that. You've got Absolutely. to give this kid a chance, right? Absolutely. Because it was given to me. It was given to me. And when I was 10 years old, and Miss Morova went to my mother and said, Mrs. Toth, you have to take her to see E. Virginia Williams because your daughter does not belong here. I was crushed. I was heartbroken. I cried my eyes out. And I, in my very gentle way, because my mother was my mother, I was trying to say, no, I'm not going. And she said, oh, you absolutely are so just... You know, forget it, forget the tears. One of the things about excellence that I've learned is when you get comfortable, you don't learn. So you had probably reached a point where this beautiful teacher that you described to me had taught you everything she could, and it was time to go on to the Boston Ballet. Tell me about your audition. So I'm in this class, and all of a sudden, this woman, she has a black kerchief off. She comes in like a tornado. She's dressed all in black. She has a great big black bag. She slams the door. Now I just want to run and hide because it sounds like a bomb went off. She starts teaching class, and it's like my eyes are everywhere. She's teaching in a language I've never heard. Everybody knows what's going on except I don't know what's going on because Miss Moreover did not have the vocabulary, the French vocabulary that Miss Williams was using. So okay, For so the dance moves the, yes, and the yes, positions. Yes. Okay. I mean, in a professional class, the, the instructor is it's verbal. So, so you have no idea have what's no going idea. on here. So we got through the warm-up, and I'm just kind of following everybody's, what everybody else is doing. We're just standing there. Now, Miss Williams is placing the dancers in groups. So if you are first line, first group, you are like the best, okay? If you're in between the first row and the second row of the first line, you are on the list. You are on the you are on the list and everybody's fighting for that place so I'm standing there and she goes Ezra well my name's not Ezra so I'm just standing there and she goes 
Ezra, I'm still just standing there. And she goes, that means you, little one. And I, I just wanted the ground to open up and just swallow you up whole. Well, you definitely impressed her that first time, and you were on your way. Big roles started coming for you. You become a prima ballerina at 16. Can you explain to listeners who might not know the world of ballet what it means to be a prima ballerina? Well, it means to basically be the star. And I was... Up until that point, Boston Ballet was using guest artists from other companies to fill the major roles. I was the first homegrown, and they always, in all of their press, every single article or piece that went out was always Hungarian-born, Boston-trained. How do you stay humble when big things like that happen for you at an early age? I'm guessing your parents had armed you with so much discipline, but you tell me. Well, you know, this all for me seemed natural. I mean, it was just something that I do. There are so many great parts for a prima ballerina. Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, Romeo and Juliet, Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. What's your favorite to dance? I used to say whatever, I'm, whatever I was dancing currently. I just love what I do, and I have a passion. And I know in some very small measure... I'm helping to make this world be beautiful. First of all, ballet teaches you life lessons that you will learn nowhere else. It teaches you about intestinal fortitude. It teaches about what you're made of. It teaches you how far do you want to go. You have danced with the greats, including Nuriev. How do you connect with a dance partner? I think it has something to do with the sense of touch. Because, of course, when you dance with the partner, his hands are basically pretty much all over you, certainly around your waist, around the inside of your thigh, you know, you're sharing sweat. I mean, you know. Pretty intimate. You're breathing heavy, you know. <laughs> all to, all to have, you know, we have a common goal. We want to make this look really beautiful. We want to make this look effortless. We want to tell the story. We mm-hmm. want to tell the pathos. Mm-hmm. So it really is a combination of two energies coming together and working to create that story, to create that image, or to create that feeling. You know, I'm a singer, and I've duetted with many people, and the best duets are the ones that bring out the best in each other's voices. It's a You're wagging your head, yes. It's, it's a collaboration, isn't it? Bringing the best out in each other. Correct. You have danced around the world on great stages. What's your favorite stage? I'd have to say that the music hall, which is now called the Wang Center, is my absolutely most favorite. Arthur Fiedler loved to play for you, a fellow Hungarian, the conductor of the Boston Pops. What was your experience like with Arthur Fiedler? Oh, the maestro was absolutely magnificent. I'm in the wings and the ballerina says, oh, maestro, you know, when I come in, I need you to do this part slower. We need this part quicker, this part slower. And the maestro was already quite advanced there in years. So I got out there and I'm 16 years old and I sat on the edge of the stage and I said, maestro, only one thing important for me. We start together, we end together, and what happens in the middle, we're not going to worry about. What happens when you dance? You connect with something that is bigger than me. It's bigger than life. It's bigger than all of us. It connects me to a dimension and into a world that is just, there's no words to describe the beauty. 
the love, the love that emanates from that space. And I feel very blessed in that I have that and I'm able to do that. And that's what I want to do for future generations. You danced until you were 46 years old. That is just unheard of. How did you keep your body in the kind of shape that dancing demands? As you mature, of course, the body, it is, you know, a physical thing and it changes. And so, for example, like my daily routine as far as training, I had to go every other day because I needed a full day to recover. When you have really good training, and my basic foundational training was so superb, I was never, ever injured. I was never sidelined. I was a go-to gal that uh, Miss Williams went to when a dancer was unexpectedly injured, and you got to do the show tomorrow, and that's how I got to do Giselle, because... Being the understudy. Being the understudy, that's like the story of my life, you know? Wow. Point shoes. Don't they hurt? Of course they do. That's part of it. That's part of the whole enchilada. When I got my first pair of point shoes, now I'm in a class, okay, I'm in class with other little girls my age, and I'm, Miss Williams is sitting opposite me. There's a portable bar, so she was facing me, and I get up on those things, and let me tell you, my eyes watered. I started crying. This great big crocodile, she looked at me, and she said, don't cry. You cannot show the pain you are feeling. Stop crying. Then I looked around me, and none of the other girls, there were quite a few older girls in class, they were all had very pleasant faces. Don't cry out loud. You can't show it. Yeah. Tell me about your decision to become a dance teacher. You say you started teaching dancing when you were 21 years old. What is it that you love about teaching dance and the art of dance? Imparting the information and the knowledge that, that I had acquired to children. I was just driven to do it. I know that long after I'm gone, some dancer, my voice is going to come back in their head. Oh, Miss Cedra said to do it this way. <laughs> Why am Miss Cedra saying this? You know, like what Miss Williams's voice comes into my head. You know. Speaking yeah. of Miss Williams' voice, what did she teach you? What do you bring with you in terms of her style? In terms of the way she spoke to you? What's your vibe as a teacher? Okay, as a teacher, I'm very strong. I'm firm. I'm not cruel or mean. But the biggest thing that Miss Williams gave me was she taught me how to push myself. She taught me how to push myself. All those hours and hours and hours of screaming, I mean, literally screaming, straighten that knee, point that thought, straighten that knee. You know what I used to do? We were so poor, Candy, that I didn't have a notebook. Paper was paper was an issue and a problem. So I would tape napkins from like Woolworth's lunch counter, you know, just, all right. I would go home after class. I would write down every single correction I was given in that day. And I would study it and I would go over it in my head so that Miss Williams would not give me the same correction twice. <laughs> I did this. For Boy, like, are you a perfectionist. I did this for like three years. And then one class, I think I was 14, at this point, in the middle of class, and the company members are there, I mean, Miss Williams comes out with, you know, there's only one dancer in this whole studio that I have never had to give the same correction to twice. 
That was like the biggest award of achievement. Anybody, I mean, and those words in that moment in time in my head, I mean, I, I live in that. Right now you are rehearsing for The Nutcracker. Tell us a little bit about why you love this performance. It's the Boston Ballet's performance of The it's, Nutcracker. It's the old Boston Ballet, so yeah, old Boston Ballet version. And this is the only ballet in the classical ballet repertoire that has children. That the star of the show is a child. How magnificent. And so, yeah, that's why Nutcracker is just one of our favorite things to do. Have you ever gone back to Hungary? Yes. As a matter of fact, I, we finally did. In uh, 2007, we made our first trip back. What was that like? It was so visceral. It was, so, I'm home. Mm. I'm home. I'm home. I can't, yeah. You feel it, right? Totally. This is where I come from. Right. A couple questions we ask everyone who sits where you are today, and then a couple of special extras for you, Idra. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Go through it. You face it. Deal with it. That's the only way, because that's the only way to make it go away. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received, and can you pass that along to our listeners, please? Yes. Aim above the mark to hit the mark. So you do more than what is required of you. You do more to hit the mark. Yeah. You've lost your freedom. And you got it back again when you came to this country. What does freedom mean to you? Freedom means the ability to be who you are, to say what you want to say, to live the life that you want to live without anybody telling you you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. When you are alone in a big studio with a bar and mirrors, do you ever say to yourself, I've had this incredible life. I'm just going to dance for myself. Do you ever dance for yourself? Oh, sure. When nobody's looking? Of course. Of course. You should see your face right now. I can imagine what that feels like. Does it still feel good? Oh, sure. Because in my head, I am 16 years old. I'm not this almost 70, about to be 70. No, I'm 16 and I'm on that stage. And just that, that here again, that connection, that love. Age is hard. It stops us sometimes from doing all the things that we once did with ease. So many women listening to this program. How do you age gracefully? Oh, Candace, it is so easy. Tell me. so easy. You go into your head. You go into that place that brought you such joy where the physical ailments just did not exist okay nobody can take that from you those are your memories those are your experiences and those are the things that last what is star power you know that's a really good question because i never felt that i had it and i never felt that i needed it and i never felt that i really wanted it i was just a little girl that just loved to dance final question Even when we are all grown up, we are always someone's child. What would your parents think of this life that you have created and what you have done in your success story? That's cause for reflection. I would like to think that my mother would be proud because I lived my life by the guidelines, by the 
path that she helped me forge. And I became my own woman. And she was very much her own woman. How do you define success? By those around you. How much love you have around you. Idra Toth, one of my favorite interviews in a very long time. Thank you so much for inviting me to your beautiful studio. Thank you for sharing your story on the story behind her success. Thank you. Thank you, Candice. And that's the story behind her success for this week. If you know a woman I should interview for the show, reach out and tell me about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. There's also a full library of stories for you to listen to anytime you need a little dose of inspiration. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. <laughs>